This is Episode 6 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to Episode 6 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. In this episode, we sit down with John O'Callaghan, Professor of Philosophy, Director of the Jacques Maritain Center, and our Remick Visiting Research Fellow at the Center for Ethics and Culture. We chat about teaching St. Thomas Aquinas to undergraduates, the research and writing he's doing this year as our Remick Fellow, and how he got involved in the Center for Ethics and Culture. Let's head into the Maritime Library for this week's conversation. I'm here with John O'Callaghan, Associate Professor of Philosophy, the Director of the Jacques Maritain Center, and this year the Center for Ethics and Culture's Marianne Remick Senior Visiting Fellow. Hi, John. Hi, Ken. So, John, when you're not being the visiting fellow in the, in the center, what, what do you teach? Uh, broadly speaking, I teach courses in the history of philosophy, concentrating on medieval philosophy, and concentrating even more narrowly on uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, across the spectrum of the sorts of things that um, he wrote on, ethics, metaphysics, human nature, uh, God, the image of God, uh, pretty much anything in Aquinas I'll, I'll teach about. Um, but from the perspective of Thomism, which uh, has the desire to engage contemporary philosophy, so it's not in that sense merely historical, um, all of the courses I teach will have an eye towards how would this material help us engage themes in contemporary philosophy uh, in, uh, in the world today. So. And who are your primary students? I teach a lot of uh, undergraduate courses uh, for the majors. Uh, I teach uh, Introduction to Philosophy quite a bit. And um, occasionally I teach uh, graduate courses. And at about the same rate as the other philosophy faculty, uh, you have to sort of – you can't teach too many graduate courses in any particular semester because there aren't as many graduate students as there are undergraduates. So a lot of the teaching is toward – directed towards undergraduates, which I enjoy quite a bit. They're, they're fresh and they have a sense of wonder, which is where philosophy begins. And in one of your average courses, how many students would you have? Uh, the undergraduate required courses, I might have anywhere from, depending on the kind of course it is, anywhere from 18 students to 30 students. I don't tend to do the super sections because I'm one of those persons who thinks that philosophy is really done best and learned best in engagement back and forth between teacher and student. So they're, they're not um, so much lecture courses as seminar courses. And once you get over about 30 students, um, 30 really is, is a lecture size. Sure. Once you get into anything bigger, it's lecture, and I just don't find that a con- – conducive setting. I know other people could do it, but I don't find it conducive. So anywhere from 15 to 30. Um, the majors courses, because of Notre Dame's uh, Catholic um, setting and character, the majors courses actually tend to attract um, quite a few students, uh, even students outside of the major. And so those will typically be 15. 
you might have a course in philosophy for majors that might have six or seven ordinarily, but because of the interest in Thomas Aquinas, uh, mine are usually full. Uh, no credit to the teacher, but definitely to the subject matter. To the, yeah, to Thomas himself, yes. right? So I let the text speak for itself. You're also the director of the Jacques Maritain Center. What What is that? Well, um, it's a center that was originally founded as a... In fact, it's the first center founded at the University of Notre Dame, I believe, in the 1950s. And it was um, founded in order to engage and promote the work of the very famous, at the time, French Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain, who had had an extraordinary impact outside of the Catholic uh, world by the way in which he did Catholic philosophy. And over time, it developed into really a kind of center to promote um, philosophy in the Catholic intellectual tradition and some theological um, aspects as well. Uh, again, grounded, or at least starting from the perspective of the thought of Thomas Aquinas, but also expanding beyond that into other uh, areas of, ca- of philosophy in the Catholic tradition. So we, would ha- we host scholars, for instance, from around the world, inter- lots of international scholars, We've had um, uh, scholars from China, from Japan, um, from South America. Uh, We presently have one from Italy. And what we try to do is we try to give them a very conducive atmosphere within which to do their research that then they'll take back to their institutions. And we try to promote it amongst the undergraduates here. We, We host reading groups and we'll pay for their books and pizza and things like that if they come to us and say we'd like to have a study group. Usually outside of class, we're interested in in students who would be interested in doing these things outside of their ordinary uh, class and so on, and also graduate students. So across the spectrum of uh, students and faculty and visiting faculty, it it seeks to promote Catholic or philosophy in the Catholic tradition. What would be an example of some of the things that some of these reading groups have have taken on? Well, um, for quite a while, we were sponsoring uh, regularly uh, a reading group of the catechism. Again, self-organized by students. Uh, We want students who are Mm self-directed. And um, so they would gather year uh, year after year. It was kind of an ongoing thing across years. Um, Those who had been sort of students or followers within it the previous year might become the leaders of it the next year. And they would just work their way through the catechism of the Catholic Church. That would be one. Um, sometimes the documents of Vatican II, uh, other times reading groups on Thomas Aquinas, um, Augustine, Newman, um, just any, any, essentially anything that we can sort of see as in a way connected to the mission of the center, which in its broadest aspect, I would say, is to promote Catholic intellectual life as a sort of good in and of itself for the students to enrich them. Sure. Now the Maritain Center is starting is now kind of in a new relationship with the Center for Ethics and Culture as well. Right. So you're the director of the Maritain Center, and we kind of work together now. So, which very much complements obviously the mission of the Center for Ethics and Culture to promote the Catholic intellectual yeah. and moral tradition as well. So now this year you are you're taking a leave from teaching in order to do some writing, do some re- research and writing. You are the CEC's Remick Senior Visiting Fellow. So tell us a bit about what you're doing there. Well, for an awful long time, um, in terms of my own uh, research uh, and thought on moral and political 
questions. I've been fascinated by a, a tendency within these discussions broadly to make a very strong distinction between persons and non-persons. That is, uh, the sense that uh, you could talk about human beings who aren't persons. And what that, the way that functions in uh, sort of contemporary debate and um, philosophical and political is to say that, well, we have certain obligations towards persons, and persons have certain obligations towards us, but those sort of fall away if you make the judgment that you have human beings who aren't persons. And this shows up in bioethics in particular um, with regard to questions at the beginning of life and at the end of life. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that, uh, with some exceptions, the stress in talking about persons is on a kind of ready capacity and ability to exhibit rational life and, and, and volition informed by reason. And w if, if that's one's criterion for what it is to be a person— and one rests all these moral uh, questions of obligation uh, and um, duty on that, then you're faced with the basic fact that there are lots of human beings who don't count as persons. Yeah. And uh, so I'm kind of interested in asking why the emphasis upon sort of the ready capacity to exhibit these things rather than an acknowledgement that this notion of exhibiting reason and, and uh, self-determination through will and so on and so on. Uh, these represent developmental stages in human life. And if one sees these as developmental stages in human life, one should be reflecting more on, well, perhaps our moral obligations are, should be directed at human beings where this really robust notion of person is a stage in being human that we want people to develop into, right? But also we recognize that um, there are all sorts of impediments that we should address and so on. And so I'm very much interested in trying to work through the concept of the relationship of being a person to a human being, mm -hmm. where the moral questions are really more fundamental about being a member of the human species. What do we owe to members of the human species? Mm -hmm. To take an example, um, if a child is born healthy, we sort of expect that that child will develop into what we call a person in the very robust sense of a ready capacity to reason and will. Uh, but on the other hand, um, if there's some sort of impediment they suffer from, you might ask, well, why should we address that impediment since they're not yet a person according to this very robust notion mm -hmm. of what a person is? Uh, and so how do we account for the fact that we think we have moral obligations even towards healthy infants who aren't yet developed into this robust notion? Right. Um, and then why would we think even more seriously about the sorts of obligations we have towards those who suffer from some illness, some um, congenital disease or even some genetic disease. Uh, what's the basis of those moral obligations? If everything rests upon a really robust notion of can you speak to this person and then you have obligations to them, then it's hard to see why we would have any obligations to those with whom we can't sort of engage in a conversation. Yeah. And that just seems to seems to be uh, wrong, and I want to ask why it's wrong. Uh, and I think it has the uh, lots of implications for contemporary bioethics, uh, for po for politics. Um, so that's what I'm hoping to uh, work on: is uh, how to think about um, our 
obligations to human beings. And also to maybe rethink the notion of person. Maybe the notion of person isn't so much what you can readily do as opposed to, well, you're the sort of human being um, who, with the assistance of others, we all depend upon one another, can, in fact, live a good life. And that that should be the basis of the what we broadly might call dignity, uh, is what we can do together, helping one another overcome obstacles, but then also achieve uh, all sorts of success. By virtue of just being a human, human person. Yeah. Or a human being. Yeah, right, I, there's, a, there's a way in which I think actually, especially in contemporary philosophy, and certainly in bioethics, which is a really, in my darker moments, I call a killing the killing fields of contemporary bioethics. Mm-hmm. Um, I once came up with a joke asking a bioethicist, all I would need to know from you is do you say no? And he said yes. And by that I meant will you say no to killing? Mm-hmm. Because if you look into contemporary bioethics, there's a lot of figuring out, well, how to, how to do things right, but at the end of the day it's okay to kill. And um, that worries me. That worries me a lot. Um, so that's I, I sometimes think the way we talk about persons now is really an obstacle to genuine moral reflection. Uh, but I don't think we can get rid of the notion. We just have to reform it, sure. emphasizing more the human community of of uh, life and friendship. Now, obviously, your expertise is in the philosophy of St. Thomas and, and fully within the Catholic tradition. But what about our brothers and sisters who don't share that that tradition. I mean, we talk about common human dignity. Right. And we talk about that being arising from the natural. Right. Well, one might say natural law, but although lawyers and judges are quick to throw that out now, what are the basis of common human dignity? Well, I think, um, so there's, there's a point to be made about Thomas Aquinas and his thought, and there's a point to be made in direct response to your question. The the kind of methodological point to be made about someone operating from the background of Aquinas is that Aquinas does actually think that there are things that you can know without revelation mm-hmm. that bear upon these very important questions of human dignity and human destiny. And he does think it's kind of foolish to appeal to revelation with people who don't accept the authority of revelation. Right. But you don't have to because there are certain things that can be known about happiness, dignity, uh, human destiny. And so that's just a point about why I don't sort of just give up as a as a Thomist right. and say, oh, I've got nothing to say because it's all revelation. It isn't all revelation. I think the um, in direct answer to your question, uh, the the thing to emphasize is common human solidarity and friendship. What's the characteristic of friendship, right? There are different sorts of friendships. There are friendships where we find pleasure in one another. There are friendships where um, because you're able to supply some sort of need that I have, um, I then maybe I'll pay you for, you know, your car, right? Um, And that's what Aristotle would call a friendship of utility. Mm -hmm. But then there are other sorts of friendships which I think we think are the ideal of friendship, and that's where we're pursuing something in common that we both love, and um, that that's a characteristic feature of human life. But to do that is to recognize that in that pursuit, we need one another, right? right? The most important things we tend to pursue, and it's actually hard to think of something you can simply pursue as beautiful and good and lovely, 
that doesn't actually involve others pursuing that as well. Now, Aquinas would say, ultimately, following St. Augustine, ultimately what's at the heart of that is the love and friendship of God with one another. Well, you don't have to introduce that simply to talk about the fact that we live as members of a community needing the assistance of one another to pursue our common life together. And that's what, even in the, apart from, say, the case of cognitive de, cognitively disabled persons, whether at the beginning of life or the end of life or during life, why do we actually think that we should um, provide medical care for anybody for anything? Mm-hmm. Right? One thing might be to do is just simply say, well, they, it's their right. But that doesn't really tell you anything. That just sort of, it's stomping your fist on the table. Uh, another way to think about it would be that you recognize this person as a friend with whom you have a common destiny. Even if you haven't figured out what that destiny is, this person is someone that you can engage in a common friendship. And in order to do that, you need to help them with the difficulties they're having, and they will help you with the difficulties you're having, not as individuals, but as individuals in a common pursuit. And this is different than the friendship of utility even oh, as well yeah. because you haven't figured that out. Right. In, in it might be friends right? who play chess. This is somebody you could play chess with. It could be as mundane as that, yeah. right? But if they're sick, they can't play chess with you. So help them. Um, if, uh, if their arm is broken, ca- set their arm so they can move the pieces. But it doesn't have to be chess. It could be football. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be race car driving. It could be a book club, right? Mm-hmm. I think at the heart of human dignity is the possibility of human friendship. And so one of the things one might want to do, and I think this is something I learned from Aquinas, though, again, I might not sort of appeal to Aquinas, Mm -hmm. right? Because you mention Aquinas and people close their ears and shut their eyes. But that it's this friendship and the destiny of a certain sort of friendship that gives us reason to care for one another. Um, the German uh, philosopher Joseph Pieper, whom I like so so much because he's so accessible um, in a work called Happiness and Contemplation, refers to it as companions in beatitude. Now, for a Christian, what that means is union with God. But, of course, beatitude just means blessedness, right? right? And one can have a conception of blessedness that doesn't immediately go to um, heaven in the next life, but that talks about our blessed life together here and now. And maybe over time we'll figure out that that involves God. But here and now it involves playing chess. It involves reading books together. It involves making food for one another. A um, shared journey. A shared, um, yeah, a shared companionship. Um, and not just for the sake of utility and not just for the sake of pleasure. Um, it, I enjoy winning at chess. And when I beat you at chess, I really enjoy that, right? (laughs) But for us, the two of us, it's the playing of the chess that's the common bond, even though you don't like losing to me. Now, this is, of course, the topic which you spoke about last year when we did the conference in Rome on um, disability in the face of mercy. And so, which kind of makes me think, I mean, you've been involved with the center for, for many years. Tell us, how did you get involved? Well, um, 
initially, uh, I had been a graduate student here at Notre Dame and uh, knew many of the faculty here. In particular, was uh, close friends with David Solomon, who founded the center. But he founded it after I had left. I had finally gotten a job in philosophy, which I had longed <laughs> for for a long time. And um, when I was, uh, I was at the University of Portland, and uh, David founded the center. And uh, a crucial aspect of the center was to have these uh, fall conferences, which are just uh, a tremendous um, event here at Notre Dame. I mean, they're so large and there's so many interesting people, mm-hmm. uh, all the way from really interesting high school students to advanced scholars and world-renowned scholars. So it was something to come to and to be part of, uh, and also because I was fr- uh, friends with David. And over the years, when I returned to Notre Dame, I continued to be involved in the various events, the Catholic intellectual series that the undergraduates ran, um, or Catholic literature series, going to the talks that were sponsored, being involved uh, in the March for Life, and so on. So I've always been um, involved. And then when Carter became director of the center, That involvement tended to become much more uh, close in the sense of seeing common projects that he and I could be involved with and so Mm -hmm. on. More recent events have involved uh, these issues of um, mercy and disability and weakness um, that have increasingly, I think, become a kind of focus of some of the things that Carter is doing. So I've been very much... Born out of uh, his interest in bioethics yes, and public policy. right, right. Um, yeah. And so um, on the one hand, I started with an interest in the sort of broadly intellectual, cultural um, things that David was addressing. And then um, in terms of interest that Carter has had, uh, again, more of the public policy things, that, that addresses a different sort of interest I've had sure. in terms of uh, questions of why it is that we exclude some people from the community. Uh, we, we talk about us, and then there are human beings that are not within that kind of uh, scope of us. And I, and I think Carter has tried to focus upon that as a real pressing problem of public policy and law, mm-hmm. and, and I'm very interested in that. Yeah. So. And your whole family, in many right. ways. I mean, multiple members of the O'Callaghan clan are yes. are affiliated with the center. Your daughter is a yeah, my, recent my, alumna uh, of the uh, Soren Fellows program. You, we have a, a new one just starting this fall. Right. Uh, Catherine uh, was the first one. Uh, she started here actually when David was still directing the center. She started working for the Vita during the summers before she came to Notre Dame. And then I think maybe her freshman year was was uh, Carter's first year as director, and he kept her um, and employed her, and she worked here throughout the four years. And then, of course, Caroline uh, started last summer, and um, we're hoping we'll continue the family tradition. It's <laughs> The center, one of the nice things about the center is that it's a very much a family-oriented place um, with children of faculty working here, uh, with um, kids running around, um, Spouses welcome. Um, yeah. Yes, it's uh, yeah. and and I and I think not just as a happy coincidence. I think at the heart of, again, at the heart of the Center for Ethics and Culture from the very, very beginning, um, and certainly under Carter, and in terms of why I find it such a wonderful place, is the sense of. Uh, community that gets expressed in family life, but then also the life of friends beyond family, right? I think everybody involved in the center knows all of my family, right? yeah. and I know members of their family and their kids and so on. It's, uh, 
it, it lives what it's committed to intellectually. And so I think that's an extraordinary feature of it that's very attractive to me. Well, and that kind of gets at the at the question. I was going to say, what role do you see the the center playing, both here on campus and then even in into the wider political square? Yeah, there are public squares we talk about it. Or yeah, well, I think um, uh, broadly speaking, of course, there's the commitment to building culture, right? To building a, a form of life, um, not simply pursuing things in a kind of intellectual. Um, manner divorced from uh, the way in which that's exhibited in the way in in the way we live our lives, mm-hmm. uh, and so here, for instance, here on campus, when I teach, um, I, I've I've always been committed to the thought that teaching was in the traditional language of the church um, a spiritual work of mercy, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the old I, instruct the ignorant. Yes. Well, <laughs> I try not to emphasize ignorance so much. It's not politically correct. But, <laughs> right, right. Although it, it does make for some good joking with the students when I tell them that <laughs> that I'm engaged in an act of mercy because they're ignorant and they seem to get the joke and so on. <laughs> but um, but there's a way in which I think um, the Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame can even for someone like me who may have been committed to this individually um, reminds me, for instance, in my teaching that it is a um, common endeavor, right? That it's not just me in my class. It's me with those students, hoping that those students go into the larger setting of Notre Dame and just continue what we were doing in the classroom with one another. Uh, So it's a good reminder for me individually as a teacher but then also I think through its activities with students, uh, through the sorts of things it sponsors, um, sending students off on internships, the Soren Fellows, uh, it's, it's this commitment to building a way of life, not simply a kind of sitting back and um, abstract thought. Right. You know, I like to sit and read myself. Mm-hmm. Right? On the other hand, um, it shouldn't be something that is a possession of mine. I, I think the, that what one wants to do is say, we're building something that is supposed to be given to others. And certainly, I think the center functions that way here at Notre Dame. And then in terms of um, the public um, culture of the United States, I do think the emphasis on um, public policy is very important. You know that that there are uh, movements in the United States that under that can undermine human flourishing, mm-hmm. and that those things should be addressed. And that the center is trying to address those, whether it's in law, whether it's in culture, uh, the need to take the gift that we've been given and bring it to the world. Well, John O'Callaghan, thank you very much for your time. Ken, thank you for having me, and uh, keep doing good work. Indeed, we'll try. Thank you to Professor John O'Callaghan. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. You can subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to tell your friends. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. 
We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.